As uh, many of you know, the reason we had a 10 o'clock service today is the day with opportunity we get to, to hear um, from Dr. Paul Borden, uh, who has um, uh, been leading us uh, this whole week, many of you even met him, um, uh, in a transformation consultation in our uh, relationship with our denomination. Uh, we have uh, um, the opportunity to connect um, with him, to, to come in and and as an outside voice to come and share what he sees, to say, here are the, the things that um, see God doing that you want to continue to, to feed, and here are the, the places where their things are, are broken and they need some quick medical attention. Um, and we and we realize that's why we got into the consultation. We we want we know there's there's things that we're doing that we want to see happening that that aren't happening for us as a church. We we want to grow in every way. We want to get out of the way of God's blessing to to lead us uh, as His His church. And so uh, Dr. Borden, who's been doing this for um, decades and around uh, the world um, and with uh, 25 to 30 churches, even in ECO, um, but over 600 churches in his um, work with churches um, around the world to, to do that very thing, to come in and, and consult um, with us. So I'm uh, thankful uh, that the session um, uh, about a year ago said, let's, let's do this. And um, it's been a privilege for me. Um, uh, to meet with Paul and nine other eco-pastors a couple times, and we got a couple more um, visits um, to go, but now it's my privilege to get to introduce um, him to you. So, Dr. Paul Borden, thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Let me, uh, can I pray? Let's pray before I go. Uh, dear Father, again, we give you thanks uh, for your word. Um, we give you thanks for um, uh, your spirit. Now may you bring both together so we might hear from you. Oh, and you know what? As I, um, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. And I was in that prayer that I remembered. I need to uh, ask the children to go to children and worship through that. The, the spirit speaks in uh, really good ways, even as I'm saying a prayer. So now... Okay, Dr. Thank you. Borden, right. thank okay. you. All right, okay. Now, I just saved my marriage, too. <laughs> By the way, obviously we're using this hour for worship. After this, I'm going to be bringing a report, and all of you will get a copy of it. I hope you stay. This is a great church. You've had a great history. But I think it is possible, and I mean this legitimately, that your best days are still in the future. And so that's why I've been here. That's what I hope God does. So I want to encourage you to stay for the report. I've had a really good time here. I've met some awesome people, like your pastor, the session, others. I only have one disappointment. And that is that Teresa, my wife, could not be here with me. Because I would like you to meet her. Not only is she an awesome woman, she is gorgeous. Now, any husband who's wise says that. Okay. But I can prove it. Almost every time we walk through an airport, we're in some public setting, someone comes up to her and says, Has anyone told you, you look like Sophia Loren? Now, for those of you who are 45 and under, you have no idea who I'm talking about. Okay. 
For those of you who are over 45, it is obvious I married up. Okay. <laughs> to use a sporting metaphor, I outkicked my coverage on that one. <laughs> when we're getting ready to go out for that special event, and she disappears as all women do to get ready, and she reappears, the hair is perfect. The dress is awesome. All the accessories match. Her eyes sparkle. I say to her, you know, image is everything. And just like you, she laughs and I laugh. Because we know that's not true. Image without essence is hypocrisy. We've watched in the last decades as companies and corporations who projected an image of integrity and honesty and trustworthiness, and sometimes their CEOs have walked off to jail because the image and the essence didn't go together. But let me turn it around. Essence without image seldom accomplishes anything. That's also why corporations spend millions and millions of dollars on image. I'm told I need a truck that is ram tough. That I need to have my insurance in good hands. That if my digital equipment doesn't have a half piece of fruit on it, it's the wrong ones. That my sporting equipment has to have that swish. Why do companies do that? Because they understand that the image projects hope. In fact, the Bible says hope is crucial. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says there's three big ideas in Scripture. Faith, love, and hope. Love is most important, he says. The writer of the book of Hebrews says without faith it's impossible to please God. But hope is what causes us to live when they interviewed those who survived the Nazi death camps. Now, obviously, the prisoners who were killed had no choice in what happened to them. But those who made up the infrastructure of those camps and kind of kept it running, and they interviewed them, they found out that those who survived still had a dream of a concert they wanted to play, a book they needed to write, a grandchild they knew existed and they had never hugged that grandchild. And it was that hope that kept them going. I believe the Bible's way of talking about hope is vision. In fact, the Bible says that without vision, people perish. doesn't mean we die. It just means that the soul withers up like dust and is blown away. I work with hundreds and hundreds of churches who really have no vision. The hundreds of small congregations of 30, 40, 50, most of the vision those churches have filled with nothing but older people is they hope that that church will remain viable enough that when they die they can have their funeral there. I remind them that's not a great vision. I mean, minimally it takes four to carry a coffin. Somebody's going to have to turn out the lights. Who's it going to be? But there's something worse than having no vision. The problem with many churches is they have too many visions. And people say, Pastor, we need to go this direction. The board says, no, we need to go this direction. Pastor says, no, we need to go this direction. 
and like eight horses pulling in different directions, the church doesn't accomplish anything because there's too many visions. But there's a bigger problem that almost all churches face. Bigger than no vision. Bigger than a competing visions. It's an incomplete vision of what Jesus wants for his church. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. As you know, the night before Jesus died, he had a meal with his friends. They left the city and they went out into a garden. And Jesus prayed what many people call the real Lord's Prayer. And in that prayer, he prayed for himself, he prayed for his disciples, and he prayed for us. I just want to look at the two requests that Jesus made for himself. Look with me at John 17, verse 1. And now, Father, glorify me in your... Uh, and after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven, he prayed, he said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Jesus, in essence, is saying, Father, would you get people to know me, to like me, to follow me? So when I tell you, that my grandchildren are exceptional. Yours may be average. But when my grandchildren are exceptional, I'm glorifying my grandchildren. When you say to someone, you need to try that restaurant, that's a great restaurant, you're glorifying that restaurant. You need to read that book. Or you brag about your sports team. We're bringing glory to whatever it is. And Jesus said, would you cause that to happen to me? Now, I don't know if you ever thought about it. Do you realize that when Jesus was here the first time, most of the people on earth didn't even know he had arrived, didn't know he had been born, didn't know he lived, didn't know he died, didn't know he was raised from the dead, didn't know he had gone back to be with... They didn't know it. In fact, I've often wondered, when Jesus went back to heaven, how many disciples of Jesus were on earth? Now, I went to seminary to learn how to exaggerate. Okay. So let's assume that when Jesus went back to heaven, there were at least 10,000 disciples. Now, I think that's too large a number, but let's assume that. I mean, he fed 5,000, but when he started to preach, a bunch of them left. We know he did speak to 500 after the resurrection, but let's suppose there are 10,000 disciples on earth. Do you realize that 21 centuries later, The number one faith in the world is Christianity. Sociologists say if you could take the seven and a half, eight billion people in the world, put them in one place and say, how many follow Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, or whomever? The somewhere between 35 to 40% of the world's population would say, we follow Jesus. Now, you know, many of them may not be disciples the way you and I would describe a disciple. But at least their faith allegiance is with Jesus Christ. Since the end of World War II, Christianity has been the fastest growing faith in the world. Now, in about the last year and a half, Islam has caught up in terms of new converts. But if it's like a race, Christianity and Islam are out front of everybody else. I mean, you realize that Africa, south of the Sahara, is now considered to be a Christian continent. 
India, which has the second or third largest population in the world. 25 years ago, the estimation is that 1% of India was Christian. Today, the estimate is that between 20 and 25% of India is a Christian. In fact, things are happening so fast in India, you can't keep up with the statistics. When you see what God is doing in Vietnam, North Korea, and Iran, and Iraq, in the underground church, the church is growing. Because Jesus said, Father, would you glorify my name? In 1860, the world's largest faith was Buddhism. In 2019, it's Christianity. Often when I work with churches, I hear, I always say, do you want to grow? Every church says, yeah, we want to grow. But invariably, somebody says, but we don't want to be a mega church. We don't want to go to a large church. I would say to you, if you don't like large churches, you don't want to go to heaven. (laughs) Because after 21 centuries, there are literally millions and millions of people over those years who have bowed their knee and said, Jesus is Lord. Jesus said, Father, glorify my name. And the Father answered that request. Look at the second request in chapter 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Same word for glory, but a whole different meaning. Father, would you give me back my glory? Now, as I've learned about your congregation, many of you here are very biblically literate. And you realize that when you read the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, a lot is told to us about Jesus. But the one thing we're not told is what Jesus looks like. We don't know how tall or short he was. We don't know his features, whether they were fine or coarse, the color of his eyes. or We don't know. But if you think about it, we all know what Jesus looks like. We've seen the pictures. <laughs> he was constantly posing. I mean, look, look, at, look at this picture. You can just hear the photographer now. Guys, get on one side of the table. Crowd in. i got to get you all in the shot. Okay. But you have this picture. Or, or, or look at this picture of Jesus. Uh, I grew up in a church, and every Sunday behind the pastor was a big picture of Jesus like this. He's got the long California surfer hair. He's got the well-groomed sheep in his arms, you know. And in the third grade, if some kid had said to me, what's Jesus look like? I said, come to church. I'll show you his picture. Okay. This is Jesus. Okay. Or, or look at this picture. Now, I think this one was done with an iPhone. I'm not sure at this point. But we see this picture. Or look at this picture. Now, you know and I know that most of these pictures were painted by artists in the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s. And they really weren't painting what Jesus looked like. They were painting the image of who Jesus is. And you and I need that image to realize that when you read in Scripture about heaven, I don't know about you, but I find it scary. Bright lights, flashing noise, angels flying back and forth. And God understood that. And so God said, I'm sending Jesus my icon. All of us know what an iconoscope is. We just don't understand it. 
But it's your television, well, the old television tube was called an iconoscope. So you realize when you look at TV, now when I was growing up, the figures were that big. Today they're this big. But when I was growing up, I realized that that wasn't a real person. That had been shot in a studio. That had been shot on a back lot. And that's the image that's being projected. And I need the image of that person who is all-powerful, all-knowing, who got hungry and thirsty and had his friends betray him. I need that image of Jesus. The older I've gotten, the more I realize that life is unfair and it's unjust. And when that happens, I need the good shepherd who comes and puts his arms around me and says, I'll take care of you. I love you. I care for you. Or the image that is up there, that there came a time when this person who was fully God And fully human was put on a cross. And God took your sins and my sins and put them on Jesus. And he actually became sin for us because he took our sins. And God took out our punishment for sin on Jesus. And that's the good news. He was raised from the dead. You see, I need that image of Jesus. But if that's the only image I have of Jesus, it's an incomplete image. We do have a description of what Jesus looks like in the Bible. Follow along as I read that description. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. And his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he had seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. I don't know about you. But I seldom think of Jesus looking like this. The white hair, the eyes that burn, the feet like bronze, the voice with the sound of rushing waters. I don't think of Jesus like that. But I would submit to you that for 21 centuries, Jesus has not looked like most of the pictures. Because Jesus said, Father, will you glorify me? The Father's done that. And then he said, would you give me back my glory? And I believe the Father did that. And for 21 centuries, I think Jesus may have looked more like this picture. When I look at that picture, it reminds me of two things. On that Sunday morning on the island of Patmos is John, a prisoner, almost near the end of that first century. 
heard this voice like the sound of rushing waters, and he turns and he sees Jesus just as he has described him. And he says he's standing in a circle of seven candlesticks, each with a candle in it, with each candle lit. And he is told by Jesus, those seven candles represent seven congregations. Today we know all of them were located in the nation that we today call Turkey. John had probably visited in all these congregations. He had probably preached in all of these congregations. And Jesus said, in a moment, John, I'm going to dictate a letter to each one of those churches because I've done my church consultation. (laughs) And I want you to know that as long as those churches do what I want, their candle will burn brightly. When they stop doing what I want, I will take their candle and blow it out. By the way, the first church he mentions was the Ephesian church, which in John's day was the largest, most effective church in the world, much like your church in the 60s and 70s. But he says, if these churches stop, they'll die. And for 20 centuries, none of those churches have existed. And the reason they don't exist is they have stopped doing what Jesus wants. Because you see, what Jesus wants is for the people in the church to understand we're not here for us. We're here to make more and more disciples for Jesus. And when you stop doing that, you will begin to die. You see, today, most Christians come to church as consumers. Most church Christians sit in church like Russian ice skating judges. That choir number was a 7.2. Those announcements were a 3.1. the score is high enough, we come back. If it declines, we complain. And if nobody listens to our complaint, we shop for another church. You see, there's three places in the world where the church is dying. Europe, North America, and Australia and New Zealand. The three places most touched by the Protestant Reformation. And the reason they're dying is because they have stopped, like your church has stopped, focusing on the Great Commission. As I have been here all week, I keep asking, in the last year, how many people have come to Jesus? I have not heard a number that is higher than I can count on one hand. You all, you are very generous givers. And every year, you as a congregation give at least a million dollars to this church. So take a million dollars and divide by five. That's what it costs here to make a new disciple for Jesus. And I believe one of the reasons why now, at least for the numbers I have seen for now almost two decades, there has been slow decline 
is because you have done a lot of good things, a lot of good things, but you've stopped doing the main thing, which is make new disciples for Jesus. You see, this image shows Jesus as the judge of the church. But this image does something else for me. I don't know about you, but I'll follow this Jesus anywhere. He's going to win. I've been going to Australia for a number of years, and for about the last 10 to 12 years, I've been working a lot with the Salvation Army. If you don't know about the Salvation Army, when the booths in England, London, started to go out into the streets and to reach the poor and the disenfranchised and those that nobody paid attention to, when they brought them into the, their church, took them back to what we would call their home church, that church made them sit in the foyer. They couldn't sit in the worship center because that's when you had paid pews and they had no money. And so they had to sit in the foyer. And so the booth said, we're going to start a new church. We're going to call it the Salvation Army. And our church is going to be about three things. Soup, soap, and salvation. And the army began to grow because they were doing the Great Commission. They got to Australia, the city of Adelaide, in 1900. And in 10 years, God did a miracle. And in those 10 years, the army grew. And within 10 years, they had churches in Brisbane and Melbourne and Sydney and Perth. And in all these little towns in the outback, some of these churches were 500, 800, 1,000 in worship. In fact, some churches, the Salvation Army churches were so effective that in little towns, the bars would close because they had no more customers. The brothels would close. The gambling casinos would close, which is why the women still wore bonnets because they got pelted with tomatoes and things. But when I got to the Army to work with them 12 years ago, here's what they said to me. They said, Paul, we're doing awesome at soup and soap. We are doing great at the great commandment. We're spending millions and millions of dollars a year to feed people, to help people, to help drug people on drugs and alcohol. We're doing it. But today our average size church in our nation is 52 people on a Sunday. About five years ago, I worked with a church in Sydney, Australia, in an area called Campsie. Campsie is the most multicultural center of Sydney. And literally, when I would walk down the street, it was multicultural. The, the, but the one culture that wasn't there were whites. I was the only white on the street. Everybody else was from Asia or the Middle East or Africa. But in the church, which used to be a church of 500, there were 70 old white people. They used to live there, but they had moved out. But they came in. And Monday through Saturday they opened, and everybody came into the Salvation Army. They came for education, they came for clothes, they came for immigration help, they came for everything. Sunday they opened, and nobody came. And they said to me, Paul, our church is dying. We're doing great at soup and soap. But nobody's coming to Jesus. In fact, nobody's coming to church. Do you think God can do something? I said, He can if you realize you are really obedient to the Great Commission, but you are disobedient to the Great Commission. And if you're willing to become obedient to the Great Commission, God will show up. They said, we'll do that. I said, all right, so where do you want to grow as a church? They said, we want to grow here. I said, well, you got a problem. 
I said, what's the problem? I said, you're too pale. Everybody else in the street is beautiful colors of brown and black, and you're white. Tasty-looking people. They said, we want to grow here. I said, all right. Are you willing to do what it takes to grow here? They said, I don't know. What is it? Now, i got to tell you, I have been to about 70 or 80 Salvation Army churches in Australia. I've never been to one in the U.S., but all the churches in Australia, their worship service is all the same. They're just as rigid about worship as Presbyterians. They're just different. Okay. So in this church, on a Sunday morning, when the service starts, sitting in chairs facing this direction were ten old men in uniforms. Because when you join the church, you get a uniform. Highly user-friendly for visitors. But you get a uniform. Okay. (laughs) Playing brass instruments. Now, you just know how younger people are grooving to hear brass music. Okay. Now, the platform is big enough. There used to be a hundred men playing brass instruments. Now there's ten old men, and we're just glad they have enough wind to make noise. Okay. Sitting on this side of the platform are ten old women in uniforms. Because historically, the men were in the band, and the women were the songsters. And sitting between the two of them were the husband and wife officer team, because usually it's a couple who are the pastors. So every Sunday, the people on the platform, 20-some people, were old and white. And I said, if you want to see this community in this church, they're not going to come if everybody on the platform is old and white. In fact, one of the prescriptions I actually put in the report, by such and such a date in, if you do this, half the people on the platform cannot be white and must be under 40 even if you hire people to sit there. Okay. So that was on a Sunday. Monday I got on a plan to come back to the U.S. I'm glad I did because I didn't know what to tell them to do. I just told them what needed to happen. These older people who once again wanted to see God reach this community, they were ministering to the community but change the community because of what was changing in the heart. Said, we got to do this. So the men put on their uniforms, because normally they don't wear the uniforms during the week. That's when you go to church. That shows you're a member. They all live in the suburbs. They came back into the area of camps, and they began to go to all the schools. And they said, we're here to provide free music lessons. Who would like free music lessons? Now, these guys had been in the bands for years. They competed around the world. They were great musicians. Ten-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 18-year-olds began to raise their hand. Well, when the women heard about it, they said, see if there's any girls that would like voice lessons. Within about two or three months, they had 40 to 50 young people coming one night a week for music lessons. And for two or three months, it was great until a problem arose. Some of the Asian parents showed up and said, we're glad you're giving our children all of these music lessons, but we don't want them learning brass. We want them learning the violin and flute because they could see them one day playing at the Sydney Opera House. And these old men who all their years since the booths had been part of the Salvation Army band, have to make a choice. 
Will we be the band or the orchestra? And they became the orchestra. And then they said to these young people, we're going to divide you into two groups, so many boys and girls in this group and so many boys and girls in this group. And how about if every other week you sit on the platform and you play and sing with us? Kit said, sure. And by the time the date came, half the people on the platform were not white and were under 40. Now, when you're a child on the platform playing or singing, that's a concert. Who comes to concerts? Parents, grandparents. If you're Asian, great, great, great grandparents. I mean, they all come to... There was a park across the street. On Sunday, when I was there, I'd been there a couple Sundays, the park was filled with people. Africans and Middle Eastern people and Asians and the old Chinese out there doing their Tai Chi and all this kind of stuff. I said, you realize, this building is not the church. We're the church. So if they won't come to you, why don't you go to them? Take two Sundays in the next six months and do your worship service in the park and serve food because people will show up for food. They had to get all kinds of permits and permission with the city to do it. But they did it. The pastor told me, he said, Paul, he said, uh, the second time we did it, we're just getting ready to start worship and some African people come up to us and say, can we play our drums and dance? He said, I guess so. He said, to this day, I don't know what they did. I don't know what they played, but they did it. Two years later, the same weekend, I was invited back to preach that church. And when I stood up to preach, there was no longer 70 people in church. That Sunday, there was 168 people in church. But more impressive than that is up on the wall of the worship center were the 37 flags representing the 37 nationalities in that community. And in those two years, they had seen over 50 people become brand new disciples of Jesus. When they did the children's story, there was this father up there with a three-year-old boy. He was one of these kids, you think, this kid's got to be in the movie, just a gorgeous kid. And afterwards, the pastor said, did you see that kid? I said, oh, yeah. He said, his mother and father and brother and sister, they are from the country of Nepal. And as far as we know, they are the first people from Nepal to come to Jesus through the Salvation Army in our nation. That's what a glorified, resurrected Lord does. You see, we need a complete image of Jesus. We need the image of Jesus who died on the cross who paid the price for our sin, who gives us new life. We also need the Jesus who says, do what I do. Because you see, we live in a nation where most churches like yours, Jesus is in the process of blowing out the candle. And it doesn't have to be that way if you have a complete image of Jesus Christ. Will you bow with me? Father, I pray today 
that your spirit will blow through this congregation and give them a vision of Jesus who not only died for our sins, was raised from the dead, but who now sits at your right hand and has been given back his glory. Will you cause that Jesus to be the vision that causes the people here to say we will obey the Lord of the church and do what he wants? And I pray this in his name. Amen.